The opinions expressed on this show are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily represent those of Funeral Radio's management or sponsors. Welcome to A Good Goodbye with certified thanatologist Gail Rubin. She says talking about sex won't make you pregnant. Talking about funerals won't make you dead. Brought to you by Funeral Radio. And now your host, Gail Rubin. Welcome to today's program. I'm thrilled to have Bob Morris, the author of Bobby Wonderful, An Imperfect Son Buries His Parents, as my guest today. Welcome, Bob. Thank you. I read your book, and this is the the story of how you faced the death of both your mother and your father and the stresses and rewards of, of helping them through that process. Let's start out. Um, tell me a little bit about both your mother's death and your father's death that you talk about in, in Bobby Wonderful and why you call it Bobby Wonderful. Yeah, okay. Well, Bobby um, was the last word I heard my mother say. And I think it was the last word she said, actually. And wonderful was my father's last word. And um, he said it because he had wanted to go for about a year. He was a real character, my dad, and he wanted to have things his way. And um, so after making kind of a, not a very thorough attempt at suicide, he had a year left. Um, to kind of prove to us that he had had the right idea in the first place. Um, And finally, at the end of that year, right around Father's Day, he uh, was in the hospital. His heart had really started to fail. He was on a pump. And um, there was a conversation with the staff about taking the pump out. And he liked the timing because it would be right around... Sunday, June 13th, I think it was Father's Day, 2006, and um, the staff asked my brother and I to leave his room to pull out this pump. I guess it's a pretty physical thing they have to do, Mm -hmm. and at any rate, uh, when we came back, the nurse reported to us that when when they pulled the pump, my father, uh, his hand shot up into the air, and he shouted, wonderful. (laughs) So, Bobby, wonderful. Okay. And... Given that your your dad was hoping to die sooner rather than later, I mean, had you, your brother is also very involved in the scenes that you describe, and and had your family had any discussions about hospice or palliative care in sure. in advance of this? Yeah, I mean, palliative care and comfort care. You know, these are only terms that those of us in these situations have ever heard about. But um, uh, definitely for my father and my mother, these were terms that came up. And we talked about them, and we had some agreement. I think that um, what's interesting in the book is that, and I think this is true for probably everybody, each death is its own complete world and it's its own birth and it's its own death it's um and so with my mother it was a very different situation than my dad and with my bro my brother and i uh had different ideas about my mom's uh 
her end of life in mm-hmm. that she had been sick for a long time. Uh, she, her, she was completely compromised physically and um, very, very, very fragile. And, um, you know, her life just wasn't, there was no quality of life left. Uh, and yet, you know, my brother seemed to want to preserve it for however long he could. I didn't feel that way. Mm-hmm. And and that is certainly a source of conflict within families about siblings or having different concepts of how long they want mom or dad to hang on and hang oh, in sure. there. And then how much money to spend on care and what kind of care. And these are all really brutal things that families have to face when this very serious, um, important occurrence of mortality is hanging over them. And yet they're worried about how many hours the nurse is going to be paid and, you know, where is the money coming from for this or that. But, I mean, in terms of um, the conflict about care and how long a life should last, (coughs) I mean, I'll tell you this little story. You know, my mom was... um, hooked up on a bunch of tubes in the hospital. She'd been kind of ranting and raving. You you, you read this in the book. Um, yeah. And she looked completely, first of all, incoherent, but also miserable. And this went on for many, many days. And I finally just asked a head nurse, not a doctor, you know, what's what do you think is going on? And she said, well, we usually see this at the end. <clears throat> and I said, what do you recommend? And she said, comfort care. And I said, what's that? And she explained that it's, you know, helping someone with pain with a morphine drip. And if by some coincidence it also ends a life, then um, that's, you know, that's a side effect. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I mean, they have to be careful how they say this. Mm-hmm. So I went up to the doctor who was talking to my brother and I said, you know, this nurse seems to think this may be the end. The doctor said, well, yeah, that's possible. And I said, well, you know, she was talking about comfort care. Do you think that that's a good idea? And my brother said to me, why? Because it's convenient for you? Mm. <clears throat> but what about the comfort for your mother? She struggled, unfortunately, right up you know, to the end. Gail, we did not know. Yeah. And my brother, you know, contends that he did not know and that she probably wanted to stick around. Now, eventually he came around and and we ended in unison and peace together, lighting Sabbath candles and singing to her and having the eight hours. But even in these eight hours uh, with the morphine dripping, she didn't go the way we would like to have scripted it. It wasn't a peaceful, quiet, still death. It was an agonizing struggle. Mm. And I think that, you know, One of the things that I I am trying to get across in this book is that all of us around the dying need to take a lot of pressure off ourselves. You know, we have a lot of expectations of death. I think boomers especially. We think it should be meaningful and spiritual and peaceful. And none of these things are, are, are necessarily in the cards for us. And, you know, I don't think it's right to blame ourselves. It's, 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 It's not really up to us, ultimately. The only thing that we can do um, is is do what we want in terms of how we want to feel and how we want, you know, things to go in terms of ritual. 
Do you yeah. do you think having a conversation with parents and with siblings before there's a crisis might be a helpful thing to do? Well, I mean, certainly there's health proxies and DNRs. Uh, I don't know that my mom had one. Uh, my father definitely did. Um, I I do think that, of course, having conversations in advance is important, but you don't always come to terms. And also, you know, when the moment comes, all bets are off. You know, who knows what's going to happen? It's it's so true. Uh, but look at what happened with your father. Now, he definitely wanted to die, yet he wound up with this pump in his chest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah, we there, you know, we weren't living with him when he was taken to the hospital, and I think that that's, you know, default action, right? The hospitals are set up to preserve lives, not end them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I have to say it was, they were just fantastic at this hospital. They were beautiful. You know, once my father made the decision and agreed that it was, you know, he wanted to be gone by the next day. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a tremendous atmosphere of hospice and peace came into this ICU room. Mm-hmm. And he actually died quite peacefully. Yeah, yeah, he died. He, I think he died happy. Yeah, yeah. he was getting his way, and um, <laughs> you know, the conflicts there. I had, I read and uh, wrote about in the New York Times in May. But you know, the conflicts there were between my brother and I. My brother had his own ideas of ritualistically how it should end, and. I had mine, and my father, even though he was very sleepy at that point, had his. Mm-hmm. So, um, so what advice would you give to baby boomers who are facing declining parents? Well, one thing I like to su- try to suggest, even though it sounds nervy, is um, to figure out how to find the good and have some fun wherever and by any means possible and you know we all know about caregivers you know needing to take care of themselves so that's this falls under that umbrella but even more I'm even more specific than that you know if you know any music or you know Mm -hmm. how to play or you like to sing and you have a parent who likes to sing do that you know if if you know that they want to show you (laughs) their bank accounts because they're proud of what they're gonna bequest you let them do it. You know, if there's places that you want to go to sightsee around in Florida or on Long Island or wherever you happen to be visiting, uh, get them in the car and do it if you can. Mm-hmm. If you have happiness, if they see your happiness, it'll allow them to be a little happier too. I mean, not always, and that sounds Pollyanna-ish, but, uh, you know, I was always the entertainment in the family. I was always the one coming back from trips as a journalist from around the world and, you know, telling stories to my very depressed mom who was very sick. Mm-hmm. I was always the one to sit down at the piano and play Look for the Silver Lining or Till There Was You or, you know, I even learned the ukulele because they didn't have a piano in Florida when I'd visit. Um, and so what happens is when you find your own fun any way you can, maybe it's cooking some new recipe. Whatever it is that you're doing, if you're enjoying yourself, the experience will be better. It won't just be this vigil and this terrible, terrible thing. But, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm definitely a person that takes care of himself well. I'm not, you know, I'm nowhere near the, the selfless, perhaps, that my brother was. 
Hence the An Imperfect Son Buries His Parents subtitle of Bobby yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> yes. Yes. We're going to take a, a short break here and then we'll be right back. Find a final resting vessel for your loved one or beloved pet at artisurn.com. We offer handcrafted one-of-a-kind urns, jewelry, and keepsakes. Our Memorial Chronicles blog has grief and loss resources that you may find helpful. Visit us at artisurn.com. That's A-R-T-I-S-U-R-N.com. And honor your loved one or beloved pet. To learn more about advertising on Funeral Radio, please email advertising at funeralradio.com. We're speaking with Bob Morris, the author of Bobby Wonderful, An Imperfect Son Buries His Parents. So, Bob, one of the um, scenarios that you talk about was your father attempting suicide by overdosing on Ambien, and that didn't work. Um, but what do you think about the idea of physician aid in dying that's being discussed more and more around the country? Well, I think they just didn't they have some new, um, across the new frontier with that recently, weren't there? Was this something, of, uh, I think it was some more legislation. In yeah. California, they're uh, discussing it and moving in a number State. of different states, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think it's great. I mean, I don't think that it's ever going to be easy. Uh, I think that it's always going to have, uh, there's going to be a vigilance around it. But, you know, my father was a huge proponent of, uh, what was it called? Was it Compassionate Choices was one organization? Compassionate Choices. And it, that's true. You wrote about the um, uh, the Final Exit book. and um, final, A book called Final Exit. And, and the you know, helium hood. <laughs> yes. And how, like, you know. For people who don't know, I mean, my father, and I, I guess this is where my black humor comes in, but I recommend if you have a sense of humor to keep it on full volume during the, you know, the time, the, this time of mortality and parents. But, you know, in my father's case, he took six Ambien and left a suicide letter and, um, it was so clear when we got to the emergency room that he wasn't even close in that Ambien will never kill you. It's just not that kind of pill. I know. Did you just laugh? See? I did. Yeah, did. <laughs> I see. I know. And I think that's okay. I'm giving you permission to laugh, Gail. But, you know, I, 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 you know, actually, um, <laughs> I live with a man who's a literary agent who flies around the world. And his response was, Six Ambien, I mean, I like to take four when I get to Frankfurt for the book fair to get a good night's sleep. So it's <laughs> unbelievable. And, you know, the, you know, the nurse in the emergency room was explaining to me that he wasn't close. And so, of course, within a few hours, my father's awake. <laughs> he's mm -hmm. awake, and now he's being interviewed by a psychiatrist at this hospital who is going to put him in a locked ward because he's a danger to himself. Um, Subsequently, after going through this interview, my father managed to charm him out of not locking him up and finding out that this psychiatrist was single and trying to set him up on a date. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, this is the kind of thing that, that if you keep your eyes open, you can see. Uh, you can see it right there. But in terms of, you know, and so even with this uh, suicide notion and him my dad, over the course of his year where he was basically doomed to survive, 
and kind of begging me to get pills and all, I started doing research and I found out that the cleanest way to go um, is with a helium hood. And that is to say that um, with cat catalytic converters on cars, it's not always so clear that carbon monoxide will do you in and pills you throw up, you know, or somebody will come and save you too fast. And But this helium hood, just take a, you know, a garbage bag, get a party balloon um, canister of helium, run a tube in, and within 10 seconds, you're blacked out, clean, and, um, you know, and then you asphyxiate quietly. But, and peaceful, yeah. And peacefully, but... <laughs> Again, you know, you may call me a horrible person for saying this, but the instructions for this also say just be aware that if you're going to have any last words, the suicidal person will sound like Daffy Duck. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> from the helium. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about uh, the funeral for your mother and... Um, sitting Shiva, because I'm Jewish and know all about this, but... Our listeners might not. You noted that the the rabbi at your mother's funeral said that usually the mourners don't speak, and yet you and your brother and your father all spoke. And um, why don't you talk a little bit about what happened and what would you advise well, for others? I, you know, I don't know what's usual. I may have misspoken about saying that usually the mourners don't speak. I will say that when you're the son of somebody who you loved so much, I wouldn't necessarily think that it's your responsibility to, you know, put into words and clearly, you know, speak them a day or two after you saw the life leave her body. And, um, you know, as we know, with Jewish funerals, it all happened so fast. It's very punishing, you know. Maybe maybe we does anybody know have any connection to God like to have a conversation with God about this because you know there's no relief it's like you're going through this crisis of watching someone die and then you have to get on the phone and call people right very and, fast and they have to fly yeah. they have to schlep across the country and get a flight for God knows how much money to get there within two days really must we you know and then on top of it you know. If it's two days after a death, it's not that easy to make a speech. First of all, you've been up all night, and then you've been stressed out trying to plan this funeral, and then you have to write something that really is the essence of a person. Wow. You know, like I would say I wouldn't pressure myself again to do that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's you know, usually why the mourners don't get up and speak. Because well, but this rabbi said it's happening more and more, and when I talk to people, it sounds it like they, but yeah, they should. I don't think that it's a good idea. And, mm -hmm. Well, you know what's happening, Gail, is that these days everything is so custom now. Everybody's doing everything their way, so the traditional rules don't follow anymore. You know, people are releasing doves at, at cemeteries <laughs> and, you know, having... God, there was once there somebody had a disco cemetery on the top of a hill. I have an article coming out in um, Town and Country magazine about the new fangled competitive forms of memorials and weddings that you know our generation is having, and it's pretty out there. But you know, of course, we think to make a speech if you want to is a beautiful thing. But I burst into tears. You know, my whole face was like I was apoplectic with sorrow. That is not anything that anybody wants to hear, mm -hmm. you know, sitting in a synagogue. 
Exactly. Now, you know, I will also say the power and grace of a speech by someone who knew the person well, which, by the way, you know, if you can control them to be less than five minutes, then everybody will end up loving the deceased, not kind of resenting the deceased. (laughs) But, you know, I had a cousin, my book ends with the story of a cousin who was very sick herself, uh, fourth stage breast cancer. She was absolutely sobbing on the phone when she heard she had missed saying goodbye to my dad and she wanted to make a speech and I I didn't want her to. I didn't want her falling apart at his funeral. I didn't really want to hear all her new age ideas. I didn't trust her. And I tried, you know, subtly to stop her. Um, I tried to have the rabbi call and get her stories from her to include her in the rabbi speech. But I couldn't stop her. And on the day of the funeral, we're sitting there on this June afternoon, and she can't even stand. She's sitting in a beach chair at the graveside in a big white hat with big white sunglasses and this little frail voice. And Gail, she delivered the most beautiful speech. She totally had the details that of my father with when she was a little girl um, feeding ducks with her at the po- feeding the ducks with French fries from McDonald's at the pond, and and um, his wonderful way of daydreaming and conversation, and being in home movies with us, and and being so patient, teaching her to play tennis when she was a terrible athlete, and all of these things were so him. She completely brought him back to us. His whole life ca- came rushing back like a tide. And she folded up her page, and I think I'll never, ever try to control people the way I did before that again. She totally made it perfect. And and that uh, you did talk about in Bobby Wonderful and in great detail. And in fact, I had tears in my eyes when I finished reading it. Um, I want to thank you for taking the time, and I did want to mention you're the founding curator of museumofyourparents.com. Could you just tell a little bit about that before we finish up here? Absolutely. It started (laughs) when my father died, and I had his old Nokia cell phone. The cell phone was his instrument of torture to me. He used it all the time in the middle of dinner. It drove me crazy, and of course, I felt terrible that I criticized him for it while he was alive. So I saved the phone, I took a picture, I you know, spilt my guts out about it, and I'm inviting people to send uh, their own picture and their own little emotional moment to museumofyourparents.com. It's a way of remembering through one object that sets us off. Just one object, not, not the whole collection. Oh, uh, no. No, <laughs> please. Just, just, the, just the yarmulke you found in the, in the glove compartment. <laughs> Bob Morris, author of Bobby Wonderful, An Imperfect Son Buries His Parents. Thank you for being on A Good Goodbye today. Uh, You can visit my website, agoodgoodbye.com, for everything you need to know before you go. And remember, talking about sex won't make you pregnant. Talking about funerals won't make you dead. Start a conversation today. (laughs) A good goodbye to you, Gail. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Bob.